Today we are kicking off the final series of our entire year through scripture. If you're just joining us, great. It's been, a, it's been a year, it's been awesome. We did this thing this year called the whole story. We took the entire story of scripture and we broke it down into 14 different series. We wanna understand the whole story, the full picture, because this is a story that we're part of. This is our story. And we've been making our way through it bit by bit and today we get to our final series, number 14 of 14. It's a series called How It Ends how it ends, and we are gonna spend the next four Sundays, counting today, going through the book of Revelation, which is how it ends. That's how the Bible ends. If you didn't know that, if you've never read the end, uh, this is how it ends. The book of Revelation, that's the end, and it's a beautiful end, it is a fitting end, it's a powerful end, it is also very often a confusing end, a frustrating end, uh, an end that if you don't really know how to approach it, uh, it, can, it can really, it can be intimidating. Like, does anyone wanna be vulnerable enough to say, I, I am a bit intimidated by the, the subject of revelation? Like, it's just not something I wanna, okay. In a room this size, and, and especially with everyone watching online, there is a crazy variety of experiences that we have with the book of Revelation. Some of us, were like, I'm fresh. I've never read it, I don't know much about it. Maybe you've seen some like fictionalized depictions, some movies or something with aspects of revelation, uh, but you're like, I don't really know that much about it, and that's fine. That's gonna change over the course of the next few weeks. That, that's really exciting. Now, many of us, many of us maybe grew up in church, and if you grew up in church, depending on what your church background is and all that, you may have had a lot of revelation. You may have had too much revelation, right? Like some of us have family members that talk about this a lot. Some of us are the family members that talk about this a lot. I, I grew up in the 90s, you know, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and it was, a, it was a time when there was just a huge fixation on, on Revelation. I think the Y2K stuff, all that. There was the Left Behind series, if you guys remember those books, the Left Behind books, this sort of very Americanized version of, of like an end times story. And it was just kind of a constant. It was, it was everywhere, it was all the time. And I'm gonna be honest, I got kind of burned out on, on end times. By the time I was in college, I love scripture, I love the word, but like if you, would have, if you would have had me rank the books of the Bible that I would want to read, Revelation would have absolutely been the last. Because I was just like, I'm just tired of, of all this end times fascination and fixation. There were all kinds of books being written, a lot of money being made, kind of fear mongering, that kind of stuff. So some of us, maybe that's your experience. You, you got a little burned out on Revelation. Some of us, maybe there's an intimidation factor or even a fear, especially when you look at the world and you see things happening that, that make Revelation seem pretty relevant. I mean, like, like honestly, much of Revelation, if you don't know this, has to do with Israel, okay, with, with Jerusalem. And man, if you would have gone back 2,000 years ago when this was first written and asked someone, hey, 2,000 years from now, what city do you think is gonna be more consequential on the world stage, Rome or Jerusalem? Like everyone would have said, no, see, that's your, but no, everyone would have said Rome. Because like Jerusalem was, was just this Jewish city I mean, it, it got flattened, it got destroyed in 70 AD. I mean, Rome was the center of the world. Rome was, it was the, the capital of the Roman Empire, the largest, the longest spanning empire in the history of the world. And anyone logically would have said, man, Rome is far more consequential, far more important. The statistical odds, the probability that 2,000 years later it would be Jerusalem that all of the eyes of the world are, are looking at. And Rome is just this, oh yeah, that's this, city and it's got ruins in it. I mean, that's crazy. There's, there's clearly something to this when here we are 2,000 years later and all of the eyes of the world are fixated on this same place that scripture focuses on so much. So it's very timely, very interesting. Now, I want you to kind of, today's a little different. Um, I'll be honest, I was not excited about this at all until about two months ago, I started to get excited. This last week, I got like super excited. I really felt like as I was reading some stuff and praying and fretting and worrying and stressing out, um, I felt like God gave me something that, that helped map out for me the next few weeks and I'm super excited about that. So by the time I got to today, I'm like hyped. I'm, I actually, I wanted to like play a walkout song. That's how hyped I was this morning. <laughs> I don't ever do that. I was thinking maybe like the final countdown from the 80s would be appropriate. Wouldn't that be appropriate for Revelation? 
Number one, I love the 80s as far as music goes, and I think the final countdown is like the most 80s of 80s songs, so that would be great. But I just, it's just like, it's a big day, it's revelation. Here we are, we're rounding the corner, we're entering the home stretch, and we're dealing with one of the most magnificent and powerful and inspiring, but also mysterious sections of scripture that we have. It's a big day. And so, what we're gonna do today is, is a little different. Today's, today's a primer. The actual planned Revelation series that I have is, is three weeks. And I decided to add today on the front end to give us a fourth week because I feel like there's just so many different ideas and assumptions and, or, or maybe for a lot of us just complete and total lack of, of knowledge about this because of all those different factors that we need a Sunday to kind of get us all on the same page. So today, the, the title of the message today is A Primer and a Purpose. I want us to understand what revelation is, maybe what it isn't, and ultimately to understand the purpose of revelation. Because if you understand the purpose of, of this book, it does not fill you with dread, it does not fill you with, with fear. It does not make you go, oh man, I, I hope, I hope that I, I never have to experience that, it'd be the exact opposite. It should fill us with a longing and a desire to see God's world made right. It should fill us with an expectation like a joyful expectation to say, man, I want what Revelation talks about to happen. I want that to be reality because it's so beautiful. It is so good. And so today we're gonna do a primer and a purpose, all right? It's a lot of information. You're gonna have to nerd out with me a little bit, okay? Every once in a while we gotta nerd out and I hope you guys are, are okay with that. Again, a lot of info, but I want this to be something that after today we feel more equipped to think about this and to engage with it. Like, when we teach on, on books of the Bible, we don't teach on it so that you don't have to read it. It's not like, oh, Justin taught on that, now I don't have to read it, I got it. That would be sad. It should actually be that we're more equipped to open up our scriptures on our own and engage with God and, and feel less intimidated and, and more understanding of what, what's going on, what it's about, so that we can have a more personal connection with these scriptures, because they are for us. Okay, so today, we're gonna go through a lot of detail, a lot of information, I'm gonna trust you guys to just like stick with me today, all right? And we'll have some fun with it. So let's start with a word. Let's start with a word. It is the word apocalypse. That's a, it's a word everyone likes, apocalypse. It's a fun word. You know, it's amazing how many movies are about the apocalypse. Like you think about just how many movies that come out every single year are about the end of the world. There's a different... Uh, view on how the end's gonna happen, usually with movies, okay, and this, this is like almost half the movies that come out, you've, you've got a few different categories of apocalypse scenarios, right? You've got, you've got your aliens, right? Aliens come way more advanced than us, we're toast, we usually barely eke it out, but you know, there's aliens, there's that kind of apocalypse, you've got the global warming, like we've, we've ruined the earth and now it's mad at us. You have a lot of apocalypse movies about that, you've got zombies, that's a staple, right? Uh, you've got like nuclear war, you've got just some type of plague, some type of disease. There's just so many different varieties of, of apocalyptic movies and it's amazing to me how obsessed the world is with the end. And I'm not talking about like the Christian world. I'm talking about like the world, like the secular, like the movie industry is obsessed with the end. So many movies are either apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic. It's like something inside of us knows that there's gonna be an end. Something deep down inside of us understands this. Now, the interesting thing about the word apocalypse is we tend to think apocalypse means the end of the world. And that's actually not what this, this word ultimately means. And so the very first verse of Revelation, the first two, says this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. It could also say of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is how the report of the word of God and the test, this is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you see that word revelation. This is a revelation. Now in the Greek language, the word for revelation is apocalypsis. And it doesn't mean end. It means revealing. It means unveiling. It's like the curtains get pulled back and you see something you could have never seen before. That is what the word apocalypse means. It means an unveiling, a revealing, or as we call it, a revelation. 
This book is God pulling the curtain back for us and showing us things we could never observe on our own. We could never discern on our own. And it's, it's powerful, it's amazing at times, it is confusing, at times it can even be intimidating or scary, but it is, oh, if we can see it the way it's meant to be seen, it is, is beautiful. So I wanna keep going, another, another term, right? We have apocalypse means unveiling, but then we have this very important term we've gotta understand called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. The book of Revelation is an example of what is called apocalyptic literature. It is a very, very specific niche form of literature that was very popular in the Jewish world uh, in about the 100, 200 years before Jesus and after Jesus. It's, it's very unique. It has a lot of, it has a lot of uh, symbolism. We'll talk about some characteristics of apocalyptic literature, but what you have to understand is when you read Revelation, you are reading a very specific type of literature written to a specific audience. And if you don't understand what was happening in the world or what that original audience was living in, you can really miss out on, on the purpose and the meaning, the deeper meaning behind Revelation. Let me give you a weird example. Um, the movie Godzilla, okay? Original, old school, 1950s Godzilla. Uh, this movie is an example of what we would call uh, mid 20th century Japanese monster movies. So just like apocalyptic literature is a very specific niche genre, uh, mid 20th century's Japanese monster movies are a very niche, very niche uh, form of, of, of movie, okay? So we've probably all seen Godzilla. Godzilla is like, or at least you've, you know Godzilla, it's iconic. And if, if you're like us, from our vantage point, you see a Godzilla movie, and it's like just, you know, big lizard, cool. You know, Godzilla's been around for a long time. Now Godzilla's usually like the good guy in the movie, but in the original 1950s Godzilla movies, Godzilla is just a menace. But here's what we have to understand. The Japanese people, when these movies began to come out, were living about 10 years after World War II. And that's a war where they were defeated by ultimately the, the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, right? Atom bombs were dropped on those cities, completely destroyed. And the trauma, and just, can you just imagine, like, Forget about even the culpability and all of that because J Japan you know, attacked us and, and started that conflict. Just imagine being in Japan in two of your cities and the national trauma and, and fear and all of those types of emotions that, that would define an entire generation. And it was actually out of that that this sort of giant monster showing up and destroying an entire city. Godzilla wasn't just a stupid monster movie. Godzilla, for that culture, was like this symbolic embodiment of all of their trauma and fear. Now, if, if you don't understand that, if, if you've never thought about it that way, it's like, well, I just thought it was a big lizard. But if you, if you can kind of connect those dots, you recognize how that group of people could have, could have symbolized a beast emerging from the sea destroying entire cities and how that would have meant something different to them. It's like that with apocalyptic literature. This is a very specific form of literature written to a very specific group of people going through very specific things. So let's kind of, let's, let's look at a few of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature, okay? This is kind of like a class. I feel like this is more like a class today. So you guys just put your, put your, your thinking caps on. Here we go. Let's look at a few. Number one, it's prophetic. Apocalyptic literature is prophetic. And what that ultimately means is it is God speaking to us. Prophecy is when God is speaking directly to us. We see this in Revelation chapter one, verse three. God blesses the one who reads the words of prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. So this is a prophetic book. This is God, we kind of talked about this already, don't need to go into a lot of detail. This is God unveiling, God revealing, God pulling the curtain back. This is not man, this is not people observing things and thinking it through and going, you know, it kind of reminds me of this. So it's prophetic. It is also very future focused. Apocalyptic literature is extremely future focused. Now there were prophets in the Old Testament. And when prophets would, would teach and speak, very often it would include some futuristic things. But the primary purpose of a prophet, especially in the Old Testament, was never to talk about the future. That was like a, an added feature. But prophecy was always about talking to people in 
the current day. And usually what prophets were doing was, was giving a warning, like saying, if things don't change, stuff's about to go down. Like we all understand that dynamic. Those of you with kids understand that dynamic. The other day I was looking for a, a remote control to our TV. I made the mistake of pulling some couch cushions off to try to find it. I didn't find the remote, but what I did find were forks, spoons, uh, so many empty bags of chips, socks. I found cups, like entire cups that just like we've been missing. And like I yelled, I yelled for my kids, like get down here. And I just, if this doesn't change, like I went old school prophet for a minute. I'm like, y'all, I almost exiled two of my children. Like it was that <laughs> level of frustration, right? Cause that's what a prophet was. A prophet was someone who says, look, th this is a mess. You guys have made a mess and it better change. And if it doesn't change, things are gonna go down. That was what the prophets primarily did in the Old Testament. Well, apocalyptic literature is a little different. It's a different kind of prophecy. It's extremely future focused because it's written at a time when the stuff's already gone down. Like the Old Testament prophets were saying, hey, if you guys change, the current age can be preserved. But apocalyptic literature is written when the current age is, is lost. You know, it's, it, judgment has already happened. Like for the Jewish people, they've already been conquered. Rome is already in charge. This is not a scenario where if they just make a few adjustments, they're gonna be good. No, it's like everything that's current needs to just go away and something new has to be ushered in. So it's, it's prophecy, it's very future focused and it is highly, highly symbolic. That's the other thing you've gotta understand about, about Revelation. It is any type of apocalyptic literature, it is heavy on symbolism just all over the place. Let me give you a, a classic example. Um, I'm gonna read this. And he said, look at the levels which are under the expanse on which you are brought and see that on no single level is there any other but the one whom you've searched for or who has loved you. And while he was still speaking and behold, the levels opened and there are the heavens under me. And I saw on the seventh firmament upon which I stood a fire spread out and light and dew and a multitude of angels and a power of the invisible glory of the living creatures, which I had seen above, but I saw no one else there. Now, this is actually not from Revelation. This is from a, an entirely different non-biblical apocalyptic book from about the same time period called The Apocalypse of Abraham. But it sounds like it could be Revelation because it has the, the same language. Like if you're familiar with Revelation, you'd be like, man, I don't know if I remember reading that, but it sounds like Revelation because it's the same form of literature. There were a lot of apocalyptic books written at this time. And it's all about like cosmic imagery. It's often about the stars and, and everything is, is symbolized in a really heavy way. And sometimes those symbols get a little crazy, a little freaky, like Revelation chapter 13, verses one and two. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, and this is not Godzilla. It said, uh, it had seven heads and 10 horns and with 10 crowns on its horns and written on each head were names that blaspheme God. The beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. As you read Revelation, you, you read a lot of stuff like this and you're like, I have no idea what this means. And we just have to understand it is, it is highly symbolic, incredibly symbolic. And it's tough for us to read that as people living 2000 years later in a very different culture and just go, oh, I get what all these symbols mean. And that's actually not the point of Revelation is for you to understand every single symbol and what it means. Some of it, is meant to just induce wonder, mystery, awe. Some of it's designed to actually make you go, I wonder what that is. And that might be the point of much of the symbolism. Okay, so we've got, it's prophetic, it's future focused, it is highly symbolic. Now we're gonna move on. All right, I'm trying to go through this fast. Today's a crash course on Revelation. So we're gonna look at, at kind of the main components of Revelation. And this is where stuff, this is where we get into the weeds a little bit, okay? This is the stuff that you're either like, yeah, or oh no depending on how you've, you've grown up or how you think about Revelation. So Revelation begins with this amazing vision of Jesus. And, and it, it starts in the first few chapters with Jesus giving a message to seven different churches that were around at the time and, and really what would be modern day Turkey. And the cool thing about those churches is the messages he gives to those churches, even though it's for those churches at that time, it also totally applies to the church in the world today. It's really cool. We're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about that. That's usually not where people start having arguments and lots of discussions about Revelation. After you get through the church part, you get to the weird stuff, right? And it's this weird stuff, okay? And here's sort of the, the, the four, I'm kind of making some categories to understand some of the major movements in Revelation. You've got, number one, you've got tribulation. 
and there's judgments happening. And so if you've read Revelation before, it's like, okay, there's, there's, there's trumpets and there's bowls and there's seals and stuff is, it's crazy. It's like the moon turns to blood and the sky is dark and there's just, it's insane. So you've got that section of, of Revelation, the, the tribulation and the judgments. And then you have this, this interesting section where you've got Satan being bound and this thousand year reign of Jesus. Satan being bound, thousand year reign. Now, remember, Revelation is highly symbolic, actually, especially when it comes to numbers. So very often in apocalyptic literature, numbers have meanings and it's not meant to be read literally. A thousand doesn't necessarily mean a thousand. Seven doesn't necessarily mean seven. Seven is a number that means completeness in apocalyptic literature. And you're just supposed to like know all that. So great. So you've got Satan being bound. There's a thousand year reign. And then you have this other section where Satan is loosed. He is unbound. And you have the second coming of Jesus. And then you have the eternal kingdom. Now, what's interesting is, is this is how I've sort of categorized it, but there's not agreement on the order of how all that happens and how it all goes down. Which comes first? Revelation isn't necessarily presented chronologically. Like John, who, who wrote it, he doesn't say, and then this happened. He says, and then I saw. Right, it's, it's different. He's seeing things here and there, and, and we don't necessarily know what, what happens first, what happens second. There's all kinds of theories about that, but these are sort of the major categories, and most of the, the major sort of understandings of Re Revelation have to do with how we break all this down. Okay, so just out of curiosity, how many of you grew up, and, and this is not like some type of dividing line of who's better than anyone else, because for some of us, this means I grew up messed up with a lot of trauma. How many of us grew up in like Southern Evangelical Church? Okay. Not that many of us, wow. I don't know if we've imported a lot of people from the north or if you don't wanna raise your hands or whatever, okay? So what I'm gonna do for the next few minutes is I'm gonna kinda of look at two major, these are probably the two biggest sort of scholarly understandings of how to read the book of Revelation. We're gonna look at it, we're gonna look at the positives, we're gonna look at some of the negatives and at the end of it, we're gonna be like, what's the point of all this? It's, it's hopefully to get us to understand that there's a deeper purpose behind Revelation than just trying to decode all the things that are in it. Are you guys still with me? All right, cool. So if you grew up in sort of Southern evangelical church, you are probably someone who's been raised to have what is called a pre-millennial view of the book of Revelation, pre-millennial, okay? It's one of the major, major ways of reading the book of Revelation. Pre-millennial would basically mean this. You believe that you're living before the thousand year reign, the millennial reign of Jesus. And typically what we believe if we're premillennial is that everything in Revelation for the most part hasn't happened yet. It's, it's pretty much all future. You've got Jesus and he talks to these churches and then after that, everything else is, is we're waiting on all that stuff to happen. And when it happens, it's gonna happen and it's gonna happen fast. Usually premillennial uh, views of Revelation are a little bit more literal. And so if you, grew up, if you grew up that way, that's kind of like I mentioned the Left Behind series. If you're not familiar with that, don't worry about it. If, if you are, you know what I'm talking about. So like, that's premillennial. It's like, man, we're waiting. And when it hits, when it hits, boom, it's gonna be like, bam, 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 bam. This quick succession. And so the way a premillennial person would view things would be to say that we're living in this time or we're just waiting. We've been waiting for 2,000 years for all this stuff to happen. It, it, it's gonna happen soon. Generally, if you're premillennial, you're like, it's, it's gonna happen any moment. It's gonna happen soon, and we're kind of looking at the world and all these current events and going, man, is this it, is that it? And it's really, really interesting. But we believe that there's gonna be a tribulation, all these judgments happening, this tribulation period, and then we've got the, the millennium coming, okay? And, and here's one of the big positives of this view is it tends to be something that leads us, if we take on this view of Revelation, it, it leads us to be very watchful. We're meant to be watchful. We're actually told by Jesus to, to be on the lookout, to be living with, with eager anticipation for his return. And if you have this view, you tend to be a pretty watchful person. And you tend to be someone that can look at the world and you see things happen and you're like, whoa, that's, that's a phrase that I like to use with Revelation stuff. That's not nothing. I, I don't know what that means, but I, it's not nothing. Let me give you an example. Revelation. Let's go to Revelation 16, verse 12. Revelation 16, 12. It says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up, so that the kings from the east could march their armies toward the west without hindrance. This is one of the, the 
depictions of judgments, the kind of tribulation period happening. And you read that and you're like, okay, the Euphrates River, that's very specific. All right, I'm gonna show you guys a, an interesting news article. Some of you may have seen this, but maybe not. Um, so right now, the Euphrates River is drying up, like as we speak, like in a, in a degree that's, to a degree that's incredible, right? So why is the Euphrates River drying up and what does it mean? <laughs> right? That's a picture of the Euphrates River and you know, those boats are not doing what boats are meant to do, which is be in water. And so that's not nothing, right? Like it's, it's not just this general river. It speaks specifically about the Euphrates River and not even the Jordan River, which was more pertinent to the people of Israel. It's this very specific moment in the book of Revelation that's like the Euphrates River will dry up. And then you, you pull up a news article, and you're like, oh, the Euphrates River is drying up. Well, uh-oh. You know, like, what do you, that's not nothing. Right? I don't, know what, I don't know if that, does that mean that this is happening? Has the Euphrates River ever dried up before? I don't know, but it's not nothing. Let me show you guys a, another picture. This is a picture of a statue that is outside the United Nations. I believe it's, this is in New York. Now, we just read about this beast that looks like a leopard, and it has you know, feet like a bear, and it has a mouth like a lion. And you know, I don't know if they were trying to like, if that was their inspiration. I actually looked up the artist who did this a few years ago and nothing in the artist's bio or in his description says that this came from, this was inspired by some of the imagery in the New Testament about this, these crazy beasts. If you've ever read some of this language in the Bible, maybe the book of Daniel even, there's a lot of like a beast with this face, but this and wings, all this crazy stuff, right? But it looks like, that kind of looks like you're trying. Here's where it gets even crazier. Okay, the, the title, the name of this statue is the Guardian of International Peace and Security. Okay, that's the name of this statue. First Thessalonians, chapter five. It's another, First Thessalonians has a section of apocalyptic descriptions, and it says, now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. So peace and security. The name of that statue is the International Guardian of Peace and Security. And it's like, hey guys, that's a little freaky. You could have at least named it something different, you know? Like, what does that mean? Does that mean we're living in the end times? I don't know, but again, it's not nothing. Now, what we have to understand when we, when we take a premillennial view of the Bible, it, it tends to lead us to kind of hunt for things happening in the world and, and seeing those as maybe the fulfillment of, of specific prophecies and revelation. And that's a really cool thing to do. And again, I, I think it has tremendous value because we should be watchful. The, the challenge is that you could actually look at many things that have happened throughout history and do some of the same things. So for example, for example, um, Revelation chapter eight, verse 12 says, then the fourth angel blew his trumpet and one third of the sun was struck and one third of the moon and one third of the stars and they became dark. And one third of the day was dark and also one third of the night. There's another section of Revelation that talks about the sun being darkened. In the year 536, long time ago, in the year 536, multiple uh, people living in multiple parts of the world wrote about how the sky became dark for a period of about, about a year. And today, like modern uh, archaeologists and scientists believe there was a massive volcanic eruption somewhere that ended up covering a huge portion of the civilized world at that time with like ash in the sky. And for almost a year, the, the sun was like basically blotted out. And it led to tremendous calamity. I mean, whole harvest of crops failed and there was mass starvation. It's actually viewed as one of the worst years to have ever been alive. And I imagine if you were someone living in 536 and you wake up one morning, it's like, oh, the sun is dark. And you're reading Revelation, you're like, I, I don't know, guys. I feel, like maybe, I feel like maybe this is it. It would feel like that. Or if you were living in the 1500s during the bubonic plague and you read parts of Revelation that talk about a plague that kills huge percentages of people and the bubonic plague killed about 40% of the population of Europe, it'd be very easy to be like, guys, I, I feel like this has gotta be it. And so the challenge with that is, is that Yes, we should be watchful and we can see things happening and go, man, that's not nothing. That is something, that is interesting. But recognize that we gotta be careful because you could actually do that with multiple events throughout history. The premillennial view has a lot of strengths. It does have some, some challenges. 
all the views of, of Revelation, all the major views do, one of the challenges that it has is that it, it kind of puts us in this weird sort of waiting period. Like Revelation 1 says, these are things that will take place soon. And so if we believe that everything in Revelation hasn't happened yet for the most part, it's like, well, that's soon, you know, it's, it's been a while. And it feels a little odd that, you know, we would say, hey, these things are gonna happen soon and then we're still 2,000 years waiting. But then you could say, well, but yeah, soon from whose perspective? Because the Bible says that for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. But that is one of the, one of the drawbacks of that view. It tends to be a view that, that is extremely literal to the point sometimes where it doesn't really give the poetry and some of the powerful symbolism of of Revelation, it's due to where it just kind of wants you to read everything hyper, hyper literal, okay? So that's premillennial. Are you guys still with me? I know that this is a lot. All right, is anyone bored out of their mind? The high, the high school students are here today, I'm sorry, okay? No, actually, you guys can have just as much of a passion for scripture as anybody, so there we go. So that's premillennial, and that's, by the way, that's kind of how I was raised. Premillennial, by the way, one other little, little thing is, and it, Look, if, if you have this view, by the way, I'm not challenging it. I'm just saying that of all the views of Revelation, um, all the major ones, there's pluses and there's minuses, and we at least have to be aware of this. One of the challenges of the premillennial view is if you're someone that's hyper-political, okay, it can very easily combine with a hyper-focus on politics, and you start reading into Revelation all kinds of things happening in the American political system. Okay, it's, it's led to a lot of Americanized versions of Revelation and a lot of, a lot of false positives, a lot of fictional writings that have been like, this is how it's gonna go down and then it hasn't gone down that way, so it kinda, it's kind of embarrassing in that way. And so I'm just gonna be honest, like I grew up and in the culture I was part of, that's kind of how it was. And like every Democratic presidential candidate ever was like the Antichrist. You know, it was like, Gore, he might be the Antichrist. Because I'm just saying how I was raised, I'm not, not knocking anybody, okay? Not, not talking about politics or who you voted for, but it was like, man, Al Gore might be the Antichrist, John Kerry might be the Antichrist, Barack Obama might be the Antichrist. No one really thinks Joe Biden is the Antichrist, and I think we all understand why. And uh, so, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that, I'm so sorry. Um, no, if you voted for Joe Biden, it's fine. I just, I think we can all admit, even if you voted for no one's looking at Joe Biden and like, that, that's, that's, it's not. Um, so then we just go back to Obama. Like, and the point is, the point is, this is, and I'm just gonna be honest, the premillennial view tends to combine with very conservative politics. It tends to combine really well with that in a way that gets a little silly. So if you're someone that has extremely conservative political views, just, just recognize that it's very tempting to start reading all of that into Revelation and, and, and you end up just kind of being someone looking for the boogeyman everywhere. And that is not the point of Revelation at all. Let's move on to another major view. And this is one that maybe some of you aren't as familiar with, but it's really interesting. This would be called a post-millennial view. The post-millennial view of Revelation would essentially say that the tribulation has already happened. The tribulation that almost all of, of they would actually, many would say that pretty much everything before Revelation 20 has already occurred. And if you know the history of, of Jerusalem and that part of the world when Revelation was written, right, in 70 AD, Man, Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome. It is, I mean, over a million Jewish people were killed. And, and a postmillennial would say, hey guys, when you read Revelation, you gotta remember, you're reading it now, you think about global stuff, right? People back then didn't even have globes. They didn't know how big the world was. Revelation wasn't necessarily written about the whole world. It was really written about the world, like their world, okay? So you gotta think on, on those terms. And they would say that, Man, if you know everything that happened at that period of time when, when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and all of the craziness that unfolded, that was the tribulation, right? And, and the way that the believers were persecuted, like the church was persecuted so incredibly intensely by, by Nero and some of the other emperors of that time, that was the tribulation period. And now they would say, if you're a post-millennial, that now we're actually living in the thousand year, again, it's not literal number of, of years, they would say, so we're living in the, we are living in a time when Satan has been bound and we're in the thousand year reign. And what's next is for Satan to be loosed and he's gonna kind of gather all his forces together and then Jesus comes back, the second coming, and then we get to the eternal kingdom. And you might hear that and go like, especially if you've been raised a certain way, like how is that even possible? How could you, how could you believe that? How could we say Satan has been loosed? And here's what we would say. If you have this view, you would say, well, 
you're thinking, you're thinking about Satan being bound about like circumstances on the earth. You know, like there's no, there's no war and there's no, there's no disease and there's no death. That's, that's not the thousand year reign of Jesus. That's the eternal kingdom. That's the end. They would say that the thousand year reign of Jesus is really about the message of, of Jesus going out to the world, the kingdom of God growing. And so, you know, when the tribulation happens from their perspective, you know, around 70 AD and that kind of early part of the first century after Jesus, after that, all of a sudden, the church starts to explode. I mean, it becomes the official religion of, of Rome. And now we're living in this, this time when, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff, a lot of circumstantially terrible things. That's not really Satan, that's just humans. And what we're seeing is, is the message of Jesus has gone out to the whole earth and continues to do so. That's really what the thousand year reign is all about. And then you're gonna have the second coming and the eternal kingdom set up. And this is a view that has some really strong aspects to it. There is a lot of stuff that, that happened in that period of history that you can map Revelation onto in a really cool way. For example, I won't go into all the details, but even like Nero's name, Nero was an emperor in Rome, if you didn't know, and, and he persecuted the church like crazy. Nero's name in the Greek language, in the, in the Hebrew language, it, numbers worked in a really specific way with especially Hebrew, and you can map 666 onto Nero's name in a really interesting way. It's not like a giant stretch. Josephus was a, a non-Christian Jewish writer, and around the time of, of the siege that Rome put on to Jerusalem, he wrote this. He says, uh, this is ancient writing, but besides these, a few days after the feast and on the 20th day of the month, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those who saw it and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. This is the writings of Josephus, not a Christian, but a historian from the Jewish part of, the, of that world. By the way, there were other Roman historians that wrote about the same thing, that apparently there was this phenomenon where tons of people in that part of the world saw like soldiers in the sky, and that lines up with some, some revelation language, right? So there's some examples of that, and a post-millennial view would say, yeah, the tribulation was then, that was really about Jerusalem and the early church and all that, all that persecution that ended. Now we've seen the gospel go out to all the world and the church is, is growing. And now we're in this period of time where from their perspective, we're waiting. It's more maybe focused on not the tribulation, but on Satan being let loose. And when Satan's let loose in Revelation, he goes and he deceives the world and he kind of, he, he gets people to take his side and he gathers forces for like a final battle. That's what they're more living in anticipation for versus that tribulation. And again, there's some strengths there. There are some things that happened back then that map with Revelation well, and it kind of makes more sense from the standpoint of, well, if you, if you read Revelation, it says these are the things that need to happen soon. Well, that makes more sense, that that was the soon stuff. But there's, there's downsides as well, for sure. Like some of the stuff that we see in Revelation very easily maps onto that time period in history. A lot of the stuff, though, doesn't seem to. You're like, well, then what... What is the plagues and, and what about the sun being blind? Like, what was all of that? And so if you have a post-millennial view, it's, it's very tempting to kind of cherry pick certain events from history and say, see, that was, that was fulfilled back then. But then you could be like, well, what about these other parts of Revelation? You're like, I have no idea. So it, it doesn't, it's not perfect. No view of Revelation is perfect. And what we have to be very careful to do as we read Revelation, and we're gonna study this in the next few weeks, is whatever view we have, I heard a pastor say this recently, I love it, he said, hold it with a loose hand. Whatever view of Revelation you have or you develop, hold it with a loose hand. Because if, if, if you're like, no, this is how it's gonna go down and this is how it's ordered, you're just expressing a certainty that I don't know if we're, we're meant to have. Because it's not about being certain of how it's all gonna go down. That's not the point of Revelation. There, there's another one real quick and then we're gonna wrap up. There's another view that is it's a super technical term. It is called uh, progressive dispensational premillennial. There you go. That's fun. You can just walk around and say that and feel smart. Um, basically, the way to understand this view, and it's, it's really interesting, is, is to think about the phrase already slash not yet. Like already not yet. And this view would say, hey, it's both. Some of the things in Revelation have already happened. And some of the things have not. In fact, some of the things, maybe, maybe they happen in a partial way. We see this a lot, by the way, in the Bible. There's a lot of this kind of already not yet language in the Bible. For example, a lot of the Psalms 
are written about kings like David or Solomon, but they're also really about Jesus. So it is about David, it is about Solomon, but not really, it's kind of like they're just sort of a, a foreshadowing of the real Messiah. So it's already, but not yet. And this reading would say some of the things that we read in Revelation, there's maybe been a partial fulfillment of some of that with different events that have happened throughout history, but the full consummation of all that has not happened. And we live in anticipation of that. There are a variety of views. I might record a podcast this week and put some stuff out there with more, okay? But these are sort of the core ways of understanding the book of Revelation. And it's all about sort of where we are on the timeline. But here's what I wanna finish with. Are you still with me, by the way? All right, cool, thank you guys. I know, again, today's a primer. It's a little different. Next week's gonna feel very, very different. I wanna talk about the purpose. Because I grew up, I'm just gonna be honest, and this is not something that my parents taught me or it's just sort of the world around me. This is how I grew up. I grew up thinking like, man, I hope I'm not alive when this happens. Anyone else ever have that view? Like, man, I hope it's not in my time. Did you know that we're like the only generation or maybe the last 100 years or so, followers of Jesus who have ever read Revelation that way? The early church, they read this going like, like Lord, come soon. Lord, let this happen. Now, part of it's because we've lived pretty comfortable lives compared to the early church. So they're already living in tremendous persecution. So they read stuff about persecution and tribulation. And like, yeah, that's like yesterday. So I'm not so concerned with that. And I'm really looking more at the Lord coming soon. Here's, here's what I want us to understand when we read Revelation as we study this for the next few weeks, as we think about this. Guys, the purpose of Revelation is not for us to be like on edge. It was not written to make us Conspiracy theorists, it wasn't written to make us be like super jumpy and nervous about what's happening, is this this and is that that? Not at all. Revelation, A, it's written to bless us. It says whoever reads this is blessed. It's meant to be a blessing. We do have in, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, it says this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. There's an element of revelation that is absolutely about us saying, hey, whatever comes my way, whatever, whatever happens in this world, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's scary, I am gonna stay the course. I'm gonna follow God. I'm not gonna buckle under the pressure. If there's tribulation, so be it. I will remain faithful. That's part of revelation, to spur us on to that. But it's amazing how much, when, when we talk about revelation, how much of the fixation is on the whole tribulation judgment part of it. And recognize that Revelation was meant to be read at one time. We do this a lot of times with certain parts of, of scripture where we read like a chapter at a time and we forget that these were written to be read like in one setting, in one sitting rather. And if you read Revelation in one sitting, if I gave it to you now and you read it, probably take you maybe a couple hours and you just closed it, done, no one would, would close it and be like, oh, scary. No one would close Revelation and be like, whew, I am freaked out. That stuff's all fairly early in Revelation. But no, no, if, if you read Revelation and you get to the end, the eternal kingdom part, which is really where it's all building toward, you get to read something like Revelation chapter 21, verses three and four. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Revelation ultimately is this encouragement to all of us that God is working history out to a beautiful and amazing place that we get to be part of where his goodness will reign on this earth entirely and we get to share in that that there will be a day when there is no more death, there is no more sorrow, there is no, no more pain, that God will, will do away with that, that he will root out all evil from this world, and we get to live in that. And it's amazing how much as, as people read Revelation, they kind of argue or freak out about the tribulation stuff, and almost to the point where they don't even pay attention to the eternal kingdom part, which is like where the whole thing is headed. Revelation teaches us that God is working out history in a beautiful way that it is not spiraling out of control, that it is not falling off of a cliff. No, God is working history out in such a way that it is heading to a beautiful and powerful destination that we get to be part of, whether it happens in our lifetime or not, that this world is going to be fully redeemed 
that this world is gonna be set right, that Jesus truly reigns, and that nothing that happens in this world, nothing that happens in this world happens without the oversight and the love and the wisdom of God being completely and totally connected to it. Revelation is meant to inspire us. It is meant to fill us with wonder. It's meant to make us worshipers. That's why so much of the language is poetic, I think. You know, poetry is it's not just meant to be processed logically. If Revelation was just about information gathering, you wouldn't write it in such a poetic, symbolic way. No, it's poetic and symbolic because it's meant to elicit emotion and passion and wonder and awe. It's meant to make us worshipers. And I hope that over the next few weeks we see that. Starting next week, we're gonna look at three questions that are gonna guide us through the book of Revelation. Question one is who, and then where, and finally why. Who, where, and why. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, uh, I wish you, how about when? Why aren't we talking about when? I'll get into more of this next week, but here's the, the real truth. That's the question that Jesus' disciples asked him. They said, hey, when is all this gonna go down? And he basically said, it's not for you to know. We get obsessed with the when. And that's maybe the one question that we're not supposed to be obsessed with. Because Jesus said, look, only the Father knows. Jesus, it's like one of the few questions Jesus said, I don't know. <laughs> he literally said that, like, when is all this gonna happen? I don't know. So if even Jesus doesn't know because it's only for the Father to know, that's the way it kind of, it's laid out for us, then maybe we're not supposed to live obsessed with when. And the other question we might be obsessed with is what? Like, what is that multi-headed beast thing? And, and what does this mean? And, and what is that? And what is that? And what is that? And guys, if I told you what those were, I'd just be lying to you. I really would. Like, no, no one really knows, not fully. I don't know if we're meant to know. There are some things that you can't know until they happen. In fact, the biblical word for mystery, it, it's not something that you can sort of decode and solve. The biblical word for mystery means a mystery that is so deep, it is so great, that the only way you can understand it is once it's revealed to you. There are many things, we see this all throughout scripture that had been prophesied, but they were so deep and so of God that it, it wasn't something anyone could have ever thought of or, or guessed at. That's why so many people miss Jesus. Their vision of, of what the Messiah would be was so different than who Jesus was that they missed him. And we gotta make sure we don't do that with Revelation, where we become so fixated on, on getting all the what's right that we miss the who. So next week we're gonna talk about who, and, and I'm gonna spoil it, it's Jesus. Um, <laughs> guys, just hear me when I say this as a little preview of next week. Revelation gives us the most complete view of Jesus we have in all of scripture. There is, there is no part of the Bible that gives us a more complete and whole understanding of who Jesus actually is. And if you read Revelation and you don't walk away thinking about Jesus, it's like we've missed the point. It's, it's the revelation of Jesus. It's meant to reveal Jesus to us in a way that is so beautiful and powerful. So next week, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on who, and it's Jesus, and you're gonna see Jesus maybe in, in ways that you've never seen him before, as he, as he is. Remember, he was a man for 33 years. He is the eternal Son of God. And Revelation helps us see that. It's really powerful. And we're gonna look at where, we're gonna look at why. And that's what's gonna guide us for the next few weeks. And I hope that you're here. And I wanna say this as worship team, you guys make your way up. We'll wrap up. Oh man, I'm gonna take Lord's Supper so that we actually do something that's not just informational. You guys have been awesome today. I know that was a lot of information and a lot of words. And now you have things like uh, dispensational, premillennial, you know, great, you know, all that stuff. Look, the point of today is this. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding that we kind of need to be able to approach this book in a way that even makes sense. But it is mysterious, it's meant to be, it's meant to be. It's not meant to elicit fear, it's actually meant to take all of our fear away and go God is in control and this world is heading in the right direction because he will never let the world go off the rails. It's meant to give us hope and it's meant to point us to Jesus. So with that said, we're gonna take Lord's Supper. And if you're new, we have little cups of bread and juice at the back tables. As you walked in, you walked right past them. You can grab one if you didn't. Um, let's take this. Let's get our eyes on him. Father God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. 
We thank you for revelation. Not just the, the one book of the Bible that we call revelation, but we thank you for just the, the concept of revelation, Lord, that you, you are a revealing God, that you pull the curtain back and you show, you show yourself to us. You help us see you in ways we can never see you. Sometimes, Lord, we look at the world and we see all the craziness and the war. We see all the tension, all the hatred. And it's hard to see you in it. And Revelation, Lord, I do believe teaches us that you are always in it. You're not just in it, Lord, you're over it. You are over all things. Lord, I'm just, I'm impacted thinking about next week and all of the, all the ways we're gonna explore who you are and just how, how great you are, Lord, how powerful you are, how holy you are. And as I hold this piece of bread, I'm just reminded that the holy, powerful King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who, who reigns for all eternity became a person. This bread represents your body broken on the cross, reminding us that an all-powerful God became a, a vulnerable and fragile person to die on our behalf, to pay the price for our sin, Lord. We thank you for that. Let's take the bread. Let's take the juice. Lord, we thank you for this juice. It represents your blood spilled for us. Lord, your death on the cross, it covers us. It covers us personally. Each of us totally forgiven by you. And as we spend the next few weeks exploring how your actions as depicted in the book of Revelation are going to cover all of history, are gonna redeem all of, all of the earth, Lord. I pray that you fill us with wonder and with awe, but help us not be distracted from recognizing that even though everything you're doing historically and globally is amazing, what you've done for us personally is so powerful. We thank you, Lord, for your, your death, for the redemption that you've won for us. We love you, Lord. Let's take the juice.